All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuck wads? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How, how's everybody doing? I'm back from my Midwest uh, jaunt. My dates. My dates in the Midwest. I will tell you about those. And, and, and we can either... I'm pretty sure I remember my speculations. I think they were pretty close. They were pretty fucking close. Uh, today on the show, the amazing David Simon is here. Not a guy you hear talking a lot, but uh, what an amazing uh, talent. This guy created The Wire. Uh, Homicide, Life on the Street was based upon his book. Uh, he's done you know, uh, Treme. He did this thing called The Corner that some of you might remember. He uh, Generation Kill, and he started as a journalist. And uh, it was a fascinating conversation. So that is coming down the pike towards you, into your head, right through these headphones that you're wearing, or however you're doing it, your computer, your speaker. Perhaps you're listening on a pair of old clip horns, nice and loud, on a on a vintage couch. I don't know. That's on you. All right, before I get too, too, too caught up in whatever, I need to tell you what we did. We relaunched our site. We relaunched WTFPod.com. It's now powered by Squarespace. Go check it out. You can listen to the show there. Search for anyone who's ever been on the show there. You can sign up for the newsletter there. You can buy merch. You can check my tour calendar. It's all there. All right. And it's beautiful. If you're wondering where the comments are, well, we don't have comments anymore. <laughs> Sorry, unfuckable hate nerd army. Sorry. Go do some agenda driven trolling somewhere else. I recently had a, a run-in with the, uh, the SS slash anti-Semitic uh, division of the uh, unfuckable hate nerd army. Uh, it, was, it was pretty pretty exciting stuff, pretty sad, pretty vapid, pretty disappointing as an American. But anyways, back to the point, you can basically on the site, you can still, you can still do everything. If you really want to comment, uh, the link to our Facebook page is there. And I, and I look at that, and people look at that. That's basically the fan page for the show where we post the episodes. So you can still do that there, and it's just the way it's, it's going to be. And it was actually really the way it was on the old site anyway. So you can still comment on Facebook and use the link on the new site. All right? Pretty exciting. It looks, it looks fucking cool, man. It, it really looks cool. So, uh, so I'm back. I'm back. Uh, let's go over it. I, I had a pretty amazing time uh, in doing shows in Iowa City at the Mission Creek Festival. It was pretty amazing. And in Lincoln, Nebraska, also a great show. Kansas City turned out to be pretty amazing. It was a big hall, as they say. It was a big old theater. But uh, we got about 800 people in there. And they, what they did is uh, the balconies were black. That's what they say. They, they, they just erased the balconies. They were just hanging over all of us as an absence of, of people that would have had an amazing time. How not it nice that I'm framing it like that? But, but here, here's what goes down. Here's what happened. I, uh, I flew in. I flew into uh, Iowa City or, or just outside of Iowa City, whatever airport that is. Took the little plane, the little one where you just, uh, just you and a few other people trying uh, not to act nervous, looking at the scenery. Looking what we're flying into, the great expanse, the space that is the uh, middle section of this country. But I got there, checked in with the people, met Lisa Persky, the actress and now uh, amazing photographer who was there at the festival touring with her photographs of New York from the uh, 
from the 70s. Per- Persky came up to me out of nowhere and just said, uh, Sharpwing sent me, told me to call you Sharky. Uh, so Sharpwing, I guess, has a, a nickname for me. But she took me over to her show where she was going to give a talk because this Mission Creek Festival is a pretty big festival. Kevin Smith was there today after me and uh, introduced me to Terry Zweigoff. That was cool. Maybe I can get him in here someday. And then the show was at this uh, this beautiful little theater there, the Inglert, packed it out. I guess it was about 800, 900 people. And I knew, I told you what was going to happen. I knew it was my first day out doing the long thing. And I did almost two hours. Just improvised, did new shit. Mostly mostly new shit. Very little old shit. So stuff is coming together. We had a great time at the show. And, and then I got in the car the next day and drove to Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, driving from Iowa City to Lincoln, Nebraska. I mean, you would think, I mean, some people sort of uh, poo-poo the, uh, the Midwest and the flatness, but I thought it was glorious. I live in Los Angeles. Just to be on a highway and moving, like fast, like driving properly on a highway was a tremendous luxury because I live in this fucking place where you can never do that ever. So it was beautiful. And I wonder why people complain about it. Like, you know, people complain about the Midwest sometimes that it's a difficult place to live, but it's just a different way of life. I mean, I found it very meditative to be driving through the flatness. And there were moments where I was like, what could people here be upset about? This is beautiful. I feel my brain breathing. But then you start to really look at it like, wow, there's really nothing out here. Oh, boy. God, this is bleak. And then you got to get back to like, look at this beautiful space. Whoa, man. What's going on out there? What's going on in that farmhouse? That can't be good. Yeah, that's a... The big city paranoia creeping in when you're kind of overstimulated constantly by noises that might be gunshots. It's easy given a little space to become incredibly suspicious of a farmhouse. Man, everything evil that's ever existed has got to be going on in that farmhouse. Probably not. Probably just a farmer sitting there having coffee, looking despondent, waiting for the plant or whatever they call the sowing of the fields, perhaps being bitter about the the other guy's fields that he sees just a just down the way or just past his acreage thinking like that guy he doesn't fucking know how to grow corn i assume there's some farmer bitterness around so i drove down to kansas city and i was excited about kansas city because i wanted to eat barbecue because that's how i use that as excuse to eat barbecue that's a barbecue town so i put it out there in the world where should i go get barbecue and i literally did it right when i got to the hotel in kansas city there was a bunch of options oklahoma joe's kansas city joe's whatever the joe's was they were closed all right, Gates, I didn't feel like going to Gates. I've been there years ago. It's not bad. Q39, a lot of people said, but it looked a little, little, little shishi to me. I'm sure it's very good food. I wanted some dirty fucking Casey barbecue, and Arthur Bryant's, the original Arthur Bryant's, was about a mile and a half away. And I went to that place, and I got a, I got a meat tray, got some burnt ends, got some pulled pork, and I got some fucking Kansas City ribs, a little bit of coleslaw with that amazing sauce and some white bread and pickles, and it was fucking spectacular. Sure, there's prettier food, but is that what you want from barbecue? Or you want to go where there's a bunch of pictures on the wall of people that have been there? You could say it's a tourist attraction, but who cares? It's not really. It's the same place it's always been, and there it was, and that sauce was tangy and had a little punch to it. It's fucking spectacular. I think it's still in my intestines. So Kansas City, I was concerned, as you knew, as you know, but uh, the space was huge and beautiful. That Midland Theater, it was great. It was beautiful. Beautiful old theater. All the theaters that I was in were built in the 20s. And uh, it's, it must have seated about 2,200. But you know, I sold 800, and that's that's good for me. 
That's a, that's about what I get in a nice small city. And the people are excited. I did some uh, some uh, full on uh, uh, neurotic improv, and I did uh, I did a lot of new material. I did a few old classics, not even that old, just from the special. And uh, met a few people outside, and it was fun. Did a few photos. All in all, a good trip, and I feel good about myself. And I feel good about the Midwest, and I feel good about America and Americans. I, I, I'm serious. It's easy to judge when you don't go. It's just there's a little more space. It's a different way of life, but the people are great people, and we had good shows. And I ran into another kid, some kid I knew from saying, some kid comes up to me, he's like, you know, do you know who I am? And I'm like, holy shit, yeah, I do your mark. I used to live in the house with me in Somerville in Davis Square 30 years ago. This kid that was a housemate of mine from 30 years ago was there. We didn't even we didn't even get along that great when we were living together. He was kind of an oddball. But man, it was great to see him and we hung out and we talked for like an hour and then after the show we got some pie, talked some more, caught up, did a little nostalgia thing. It's weird, you know, you have memories, but you gotta you gotta you gotta blow the dust off them sometimes. Get back in them. Sort of like, you know, blow the dust off and climb back into your memories full on emotionally connected and just and just you know get a sense of who you were and what you are now and uh and feel the warmth of those uh those old mistakes and those old uh happy things it was good man it was good all right so right now it's my pleasure to uh share with you my conversation with david simon i need to i need you to know he was one of those guys there's only been a few right when he walked into this garage he picked up that old k guitar and uh, it was like he was seeing a, a meeting a new friend. And, you know, that's a good way to start with me. Anytime. Anytime you come in and pick up guitar, I'm like, all right. I know a little bit about this guy now. All right, this is me and David Simon. I like the fact that at some point, uh, you know, that was the thing for you playing it's guitar like thing for every teenager you know? <laughs> no not really well, you know. some guys go sports some guys go stupid and then other guys that you know they do music you know i uh if i could have done anything that wasn't derivative like that wasn't a learned riff from somebody else but you got to start there i never got past that i mean I, you know I, I i can string riffs together but right like, i have i cannot do the um the thing of truly improvising. My, you know, my sons can play jazz piano. I don't, I don't well, jazz is a whole different level, but yeah. what were you playing? Blues mostly? Yeah, blues and sort of blues rock, mostly blues. Yeah, I think we're, how old are you, 54? Yeah, 55. So we're, we're about the same age. So you were in college when you played uh, guitar? You started yeah, I mean, when you were a kid. Yeah, I started when I was like 12. Yeah, yeah. me too, right? So, yeah. and uh, what did you- What was your first album? Weirdly, I think my first, might have been the Beatles' second album. Oh really? Yeah, I don't know why. And then I remember having a, roll over Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, that roll over Beethoven was like that was it. The Chuck Berry beginning. Yeah, yeah. I like like learning that was the most important thing in my life, <laughs> and I didn't learn until high school. And it's pretty I simple. Know, I know. It's, you you too? Well, yeah, I mean, I I love Chuck Berry. Um, right. But and, and it was a big deal to me to learn that stuff. And uh, but the Chicago blues stuff is what sort of caught me very early. The the older stuff for the like uh, <laughs> you know Muddy and no, uh, electric, Alan Wolf like. How classic you know five member band little walter all that yeah stuff. yeah yeah that was my shit and and i found them largely the usual route through the rolling stones right credence and and i was you know i just could never i could copy stuff but i could never bring any insight to it musically you know i mean i was just always thinking i was okay. in my high school jazz band yeah and i was always like 
a half a measure behind the band, you know, like, oh shit, no, yeah. they meant flatted seventh ninth. You know? Yeah, I, I can't. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't play shells, but but my son can't. I mean, he plays guitar and piano, and he's he's relentless. Is he in a band? He actually uh, he's in college now, and he's been playing. Uh, he's been fronting, not fronting. He's not the frontman. He's the keyboard player and kind of the, one of the arrangers and songwriters for a a, a Stax Volt. Oh yeah, eleven piece Stax Volt. Really up in yeah in Boston. And uh, yeah, they're coming to the end of their run because they're all getting ready to graduate. Right, right, right. So it's like, but he, I think he's going to go into music. So that that's a proud thing. Like when the when the son kind of picks up and does something amazing that you wanted to do. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of it's in the tradition because my dad wanted to be a newspaper reporter. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, and I don't know that I by osmosis I chose that because to to sort of please him, mm-hmm. but it happened, and uh, and so. Um, well, what was the first thing that compelled you to do that? I mean, like, you, when did your dad uh, do? Uh, he never did any journalism, or he did? No, he did briefly. Uh, he he was the uh, managing editor of the paper at NYU and right. a journalism major. And uh, what year? So that would have been back a bit. Thirties, yeah, in the late thirties, right? And uh, he graduated uh, and went to work. Uh, he was, uh, he, I think, he had a brief. He was a stringer, I know, for the Hudson County Dispatch, and he was freelancing uh-huh. in New York, around New York, and trying to get picked up on a paper. And then the war, and yeah. then he went into the Army. And when he came out of the Army, uh, my brother was born in 46, pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and he needed to get- Make a, money. Yeah, a little bit more than, than you could be for being a newspaper. Head. Right, right. So he, he, uh, he went into PR. But he ended up being a public relations guy and dealing with reporters. His whole, like there were reporters over my house all the time. And for, what did he PR for? Uh, a Jewish service organization named B'nai B'rith. I know uh, B'nai B'rith. You know B'nai B'rith? Yeah, the BBYO. Yeah, BB, were you B- in, B'nai B'rith Youth Organization. Were you in BBYO? No, I was in the other one, uh, the younger, A-Z-Z? USY. Oh, USY. U- right, was that what it was called? The United Synagogue like Youth. Yeah. Briefly. Yeah. yeah. Briefly. <laughs> Well, he was he was the PR director. That's what moved us from New York to Washington. He was the PR director for the the the, the whole organization, the International. Uh huh. This sort of umbrella group. And how how Jewish were you brought up? Uh, you know, uh, bar mitzvah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, suburban Jewish. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like when when did you see the Coen Brothers movie. Yes, yeah, serious one, man. Uh, serious. Uh, oh, yeah. You're like, isn't that the most familiar thing you ever saw in your life? I, I'm watching it. I'm thinking, this is a documentary. You know, <laughs> this is a goddamn documentary, and, and it was just so beautifully. Re- you know, it's the story of Job. Yeah, it's just yeah, so, right. It's so beautifully rendered. Yeah, that uh, I'm watching it. I'm thinking, oh my god, right down to the. Oh, that's amazing. You know, right down to the. You know, going going to. Uh, yeah, you, to go to Hebrew school, like you know, when you're 12 or 13, it's, it's just like you can't bear. You yeah, can't bear yeah, it. Anymore. Yeah. You know, just you know, where's my marijuana? Yeah, um, I was a terror to Hebrew school teachers. <laughs> I, did, I mean, it was like it wasn't real school, so you might as well you know just push the buttons of the teachers. I just was the, the worst. Uh, well, it was just that you'd sort of burned out. You'd, you'd done the whole. You know, I, I I wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated last year. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but um, there was a baseball player in my youth who was Jewish. Yeah. Uh, for the Washington Senators when yeah. I was growing up, Mike Epstein. Yeah. He actually played for Oakland. Oh, he's my way. When I all I heard about was Sandy Kovacs for my entire life. Right. The sure. only Jewish baseball sure. player. Sure. Yeah. There weren't yeah. many, so yeah. you, you gathered around them. But we, you know, to have the, this power hitting first baseman playing for my you know terrible local team, he was such a hero to me. Yeah. And I actually had the moment of praying. Uh, to God in the men's room, in the, in the men's room, the yeah. boys' room yeah. of Rock Creek Forest Elementary School, yeah. saying, "Dear God, if you let Epstein hit a home run right now, I will never skip Hebrew school again." <laughs> and he jacked one into the upper, into the <laughs> upper deck in right field. 
And I remember, I can still see my face like cheering in that oxidized, screwed up mirror. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, you know, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh no, what did I just promise God? You know? Because of course I was skipping Hebrew school like right. you know, two weeks later. And now you got to get and, on the straight and so, narrow. Yeah. So after that, uh, Epstein got traded to Oakland and then the whole team moved and became the Texas Rangers. So clearly the Old Testament God was not going to be appeased by my performance. You know? <laughs> if you've ever like tried to read a few pages of Talmud, and, and I have because it's such an interesting dynamic of like, hi, we're going to basically treat this like a legal text. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to try to figure out uh, the Torah and, yeah. and figure it out down to like, you know, yeah. and, and we're going to, you know, majority opinions, dissenting opinions, dissenting <laughs> yeah. on dissent. And and you read it and, and you realize, my God, this is thousands of years of arguing of, of my dinner table of, of arguing <laughs> of of like five Jews, seven opinions. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, so you get, well, yeah, it was heated when you grew up. Um, yeah, but like, arg- but never malevolent. Argument right. was sport. Uh, my brother said it best. My argument was sport. It was just and, the two of you? Uh, no, I had a, I had a sister. She passed away. Uh, Sorry, of cancer. Um, but there were three of us, and I was much younger. My my brother is 14 years older than me. My sister was 10. Mm-hmm. So I was the kid. And so, like, a lot of the arguments were flying over my head. But you absorb this stuff. Mostly I mean, politics or what? Yeah, politics. I mean, I, I, I have distinct memories of being eight years old and hearing the fury at the table in 1968. Uh, you know, my sister was- About for, the war? Yeah, my sister was for Kennedy. My brother was for McCarthy. Um, and my father was for Humphrey. And All was, Democrats. Well, uh, listen, it was gradations of liberal. <laughs> right, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Gradations yeah. of Jewish liberal, yeah. of, of New Deal Democrat. Right, liberal. right. And that was that was my childhood. And um, and did did you find, uh, when did your interest become sort of engaged about it? Because you, what did you do when you went to college? What did you study when you were uh, playing I guitar? I started as a journalism major. Yeah. And I wanted to be a newspaper reporter from, uh, I guess, 13, 14. I sort of became just, interested in it. Just because of your dad or something else? Um. I, it was just in the ether of my house. It was, yeah. it was floating around. I mean, we took three newspapers. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we took the Times on Sunday. We took the Washington Post, Washington Star. We discussed current events. You know, it, we discussed the writers in the paper. Really? You, yeah. Your family was that engaged, that sophisticated. It, it's nice. It was, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, there were three book. It was a, you know, basically a three bedroom rancher with, yeah, you know, where there were wall to wall bookshelves on about three rooms. Right. And it was just, you know, you, my father. My father was not somebody who, you know, he, he he had a depression sort of sensibility about the world. You know, when it came to like sort of haute cuisine or like, you know, yeah, I, I yeah, I, oh come on, food was invented in 1945. We we, we there's nothing you can show me that's <laughs> like like he always felt like it was all a game being right. Or, you know, was he able and, to enjoy things? And, yeah, but that was what I was gonna say is yeah. is that but you know a hardback book. That's worth whatever you want to charge me for it. I'll, right. You know, a paperback. Why would I want to own a paperback when I could own yet another hardback? That was the house. It was a house of um, argument and idea. Uh-huh. And, and it was. I, I'm grateful for it. It was. It was. Well, fun. it was interesting because I, I, you know, uh, Obama sat there. You know, I know, I know, and and then I wa- I watched your. Hey, by uh, the way, this chair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but All you. Right. I mean, but he summoned you. You know, right? I, 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 they didn't let me sit in his chair. Right. Well, you probably could I have. To, you I just had, didn't ask. I had, to, I had to come out to Highland Park for that. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> but I watched that thing. It was a very interesting uh, uh, thing. I, I do, do. You know why why that happened? I know exactly what happened. Um, you talk. Let me just set yeah. it up a little bit. You, sure. So you were you were asked to by the president to just have a conversation. He wanted right. to pick your brain. 
about drug policy in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit of a stage thing in the sense of. I there, can tell by the shots. Yeah, there, some, there was this. Uh, there was this uh, one day conference. Yeah, and I normally don't like to get involved in sort of government. I, you know, you can be conference to death and nothing ever happens. Right. But every now and then, uh, this was because the sponsors were everybody from like Nick, Newt Gingrich to Donna Brazil. It was this truly bipartisan uh, thing about trying to reduce the prison population. Right. And of course, that's been my my thing for about fifteen years. Is would you, know, you consider that your primary agenda? Uh, politically, if, if I have a specific thing that I've sort of focused on, it would be ending the drug war and trying to. You know, I, I'm talking down the drug war every chance I get, right? And trying to trying to reduce the prison population and, and end zero tolerance and militarized policing and all that stuff. I think I think it's been a disaster for the country. So here comes this moment, and I really don't want to get involved. But they say, look, we have a real chance of doing this in the last two years of the presidency, right? Um, why don't you Why don't you do 10 minutes on a panel there. And, and like I reluctantly said yes. And once I said yes to the group, which was sort of an adjunct of, of administration people, this call came from the White House. They said, instead of his usual remarks to the luncheon, you yeah. know, where he tapes six minutes, the president would instead like to have a conversation with you. So you know, figure out how to say yes, uh, you know, or, or maybe even yes, sir. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, but what were your feelings uh, initially? My initial feeling was, if this is actually going to happen, um, I have to wear a, a, a jacket, a sport coat, and a tie. <laughs> you know, and and I, and then the, my second thought was, um, I got my my son's going to want to come with me to the White House, right? And so he came down from college. He's in college. Were you excited to talk to the president, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah. listen, I admire this guy. Yeah, um, I do. I mean, he's like, I'm, a, I'm a lefty Democrat, mm-hmm. um, and, and I've I've said. And, and I think sort of the last eight years have borne me out. I, I think this is a good man with, with and a wise man. And I think he's he's in a rigged system. Yeah. And I think he actually it was sort of surprising to hear him say that in the State of Un- the Union. He was basically saying it doesn't matter. It's, it's not all about who we elect. It's about what system, what the system is at this point. And also thinking about the fucking future. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes you see the, 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 the kind of um, the, the lack of movement because of ideology, principles, and money, where you're like, don't any, don't, doesn't anyone realize that you know, we're supposed to live on? Well, Ed Burns, my writing partner yeah. on The Wire, he had a very good line about this. He said, nobody plants olive trees in American yeah. politics, which is, hey, I'm going to plant this tree, and in seven years, you might get an olive. Yeah. You know? I, but, but there's no other way. If you want an olive, there's no other thing to do but plant the tree and be patient. Yeah. And there is no policy uh, that is seriously considered by this country if it can't yield something before the next congressional election cycle it's it's so cynical and you we have to assume that you know they're, they're they may be morons but they they can't be that nihilistic they're, i don't think they're morons i think the, i think the their the money has trapped them which mm-hmm. is to say uh the supreme court basically said please you know purchase our government at whatever rate and whatever you know uh level of 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 expenditure you wish yeah said that to mass capital and if you read this piece by steve uh, Israel in in, in, um, in the New York Times is he's he's leaving and he's basically saying, "Good news, you'll be able to take my phone calls now in my district without me hocking you for money because, you know, the hours that we spend just chasing the dollars so that we can throw two million dollars into this race and they throw two million and then we throw another two million, you know, what they've opened up the Pandora's box of money it's destroyed um, one of the branches of government. The presidency is still the presidency, right? You know, it's still a populist right. notion. You know, get the votes, get the Electoral College. The Supreme Court, whether you agree with these nine justices or not, it's still what it is. Congress is just 
paid yeah. for. It's just bought. Yeah. yeah. The legislative branch of our government is- It's is, a money laundering it's, operation. It, it's been given over to capital. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and capital is there to preserve profit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, yeah. it's nothing more sociopathic than that. And and when you approach this, you know, creatively or, or with, uh, you know, your projects, you, you take these ideas. I mean, you know, obviously- the purchasing of the government and the 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 prison industrial complex, you know, are, are sort of two sizes. They're, 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 that's part of that, right? I mean, certainly the privatization of prisons, right? Was was it? You know, I mean, the notion that the product could be human incarceration, yeah, shows you the level of sort of psychic disease that that can be applied. You know, I mean, capitalism is not a moral force. No. How we ever mistook it for that? You know, it's it, sort of the opposite. But it's that, the opposite. It, 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 you know, it doesn't mean that like it's not the most effective way of generating mass wealth in, right. in the modern world. Yeah, clearly it's demonstrated its its it, it, its great facility for that. Well, the interesting. But what th- you do with the what you do with the money? Right. That's how that, that's the definition of society. Right. Or right. what you don't do with the money? Right. Well, this whole idea that privatization and the free market will find its level and the and and the 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 most moral thing will win out was retarded. No, it's it's it, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's it, what about greed? I mean, it's one of the seven deadlies. I mean, what do you well, think people do? You ever get in an argument with a libertarian? I try. It, it's annoying. I can't. It, it I don't is. have the patience for it or the, the skill set anymore. I I don't. <laughs> there is no skill set. There is. There's no skill. <laughs> but but the one thing they always rely on is like it'll invariably you'll start pointing out where like look at what happened when you let when you let capital right. address the system of incarceration. They made human misery into a product, and they went to Wall Street with it, and they said, "Hey, we can guarantee you three percent growth next year." Yeah, that's three percent more of the population going to jail. Yeah, you know, yeah. how do you do that? Well, you got to make more nonviolent crimes, yeah, jailable, right? And and mostly poor people, mostly people of, of color. Course, yeah, of course, it's insane. And, and yet, when you talk, they'll look at you and they go, "Oh, well, that's crony capitalism." Like, wait, wait a sec, is there another t- kind? T- t- of course, <laughs> t- tell me the society in in human history that ever applied capitalism in, in some sort of benign way. That wasn't mitigated by the society saying, look, here's our priorities, here's our moral standards, here's what we want to do, here's what we don't want to do. Figure it out. You know, the crony capitalism is like, no, 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 it'll, once the markets get it pure. Yeah, you, pure markets. You, you guys are batshit crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. And I think citizenship in some very basic ways. Um, you know, if you're talking to me about the, those wonderful watchwords of freedom and liberty, um, and you're not like, there's not a corresponding sense of responsibility. All that is to me is it's just a recipe for a, uh, an incredibly selfish culture. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, it's you know, if, you, if it's all responsibility and no freedom, that's tyranny. But but somewhere in the middle um, is is something that you know, Jesus, the Athenians recognized it yeah. as being as being sort of a fundamental of of the democratic state. You know, you got to kick in, and you got to kick in, and you know, if somebody down the road is getting the shit kicked out of them um, wrongly. You're marginalized, even if you don't feel it. Even if it's happening to somebody else, a little lower on the on on whatever the pyramid yeah. of pain is. Yeah, you know, at the moment that you don't stand up for that guy, it's closer to you. Right, and that I mean, it's just something that is so elemental, and yeah. yet so many people don't stand well, up. Right, right, because it's a it's a, the ideology is it's not, it's not my problem. Yeah, in yeah. fact, he's different from me. 
Right. Well, that's yeah, yeah even worse because yeah, that's even that's worse. loaded. Yeah. You know, not my problem is just selfish. It's not my problem because he's different than me. Is is, is exclusionary is, yeah, racist? Yeah. And 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 we're we're still living through those times. No, absolutely. Amazing. So when you let's you know go back to the career because I I you know how do you like show business? You good with it? Um, <laughs> how do you like being a whore? <laughs> Eh, it's not bad, you know. It's not bad. But do you really pays, feel the, that the pay's okay? Yeah, um, I, I, I'm having a good run, and for the most part, what I get to do is meaningful to me. There are yeah. things that I have trouble getting made. Yeah, um, that that are um, would be even more meaningful at times. Yeah, um, I'm disappointed by the pro, uh, by the projects that, that can't find favor because they can't be maximized as entertainment. Like what I, is that? But you did all right. The, the last thing you did, Show Me a Hero, was was in, you know right. relatively uh, improbable. Yeah, yeah. And and I was and I'm grateful for that. I don't mean to be. I'm not. You know, I understand. I occupy a very weird uh, sinecure. Well, you know what's what was interesting from my experience with The Wire, and you know, and it happened a, a bit with Treme, though I haven't had the follow through with Treme. Mm. Was with the wire, which is you know, which I obviously heard a lot about, and you know, I and I didn't watch it when it was on because what I would do is I'd watch, I'd be on HBO or whatever, and I'd watch an episode. Then maybe a few weeks later, I'd watch another one. I'm like, I have no idea what this show's about. Yeah. So, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot. What happened to me was, you know, I started, I rented, I got all of them, you know, from Netflix, and I just started, I just started at the beginning, and then I couldn't do anything. For three weeks, like I had to watch every one of them yeah. in order, and we didn't. We obviously didn't have a plan for that. That was not our plan. I know, but there was no other way to watch it. In a way, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the one thing you had going for it, if you if you had HBO, was yeah, they were showing it five times a week, right? You know, so you know, if you but, miss but, it Tuesday, catch it Thursday, right? But. but that being said, when I watched it the way I watched it, it was as compelling as reading. Uh, uh, an amazing novel, or reading, you know, almost a a nonfiction about these these layers of of society and and the right. organization it, of hierarchies. It, it, that I, it, it was, turned out we were optimized for that. And but it, it, you know, when we started doing the show, DVD box sets were not even a, a thing, and and, right. and downloads certainly were just a gleam in anybody's eye. So we got lucky. Um, and but I think that's true. For, like what I'm doing, I'm always arguing that. Look, if you let us make it, it'll go on the shelf, and people will find it. People will eventually, you know, they'll uh, they'll calm down about the fact that you know you actually have to. The, the music actually is part of the point of Treme, and, and I mean, I love you know, I love all I love all my children kind of equally. Yeah, uh, they'll find you know they, the, the Marines all found Generation Kill and turned people onto it, and 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 um, got some respect. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, like I don't think I'm. I, th I think I keep ex executing at a pretty high level, and I'm pretty happy with the material. But I do. I don't expect anything to find favor right away. I, f I expect it to get sort of good reviews by the by the people who have to attend to it professionally. Yeah, and then to go s quietly slip below the waves, and then word of mouth to 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 kick it up. Well, let's ratchet it up. Let's talk about this sort of uh, the transition because I mean, you were a real journalist. You know, you over well you a reasonable take. a reasonable facsimile thereof. But yeah. but you you believed in it, oh, and and, I still and, do. and your yeah. commitment to to uh, proper investigation and proper reporting. You know, specifically, you know, in Baltimore and, and early on in into the world that you were dealing with narco crimes, right? Mostly yeah. that you know you were you, you know you were on your way, and you were as a young man in your twenties, you you were going to be that guy. I was going to grow old on the copy desk. I mean, I I wanted to be a newspaperman, and you loved it. I loved it. And so what ultimately began to disintegrate or, or, or fall apart for you to make the transition that you made? Um, 
Well, out of town ownership for my newspaper. My newspaper got bought by the LA Times, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time is it Baltimore Sun. Yeah, we, yeah. At the time, they said, uh, "Oh, you got bought by the good chain." You know, thank God you didn't get by. It wasn't Gannett. It was right. the LA Times. Right. These people are good. Yeah. And, well, and that's it, what people tell themselves, you know, as Rome falls. Like, these, right. this is okay. Hitler's okay. Well, I mean, yeah. It's, so, <laughs> right. just, we'll just work with them. Right. We'll work yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, they're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, yeah right. they're, they're just, yeah. okay. They broke a few windows. <laughs> it, it's not going to get worse. So, <laughs> you know, so there was a little bit of, um, and at first, you know, there was sort of a hands-off. They were very touchy-feely yeah. at first with us. But slowly, um, the management of the paper, you got the impression that they were that they were from out of town and, and their sense of the city was not of a place that they were covering to be intelligent or comprehensive about what the actual problems were mm-hmm. and, and, like, address and explain anything. They were chasing prizes. They were, they like, you know, if I can win two or three Pulitzers, then I'll get the bump and I'll go to a... I'll get. I'll go to another paper in the chain, a bigger. You know, I'll get out of Baltimore, and so like you would see this sort of prize culture taking over. It's also like this weird kind of um, selfish careerism. Well, and, and, yeah, and it's not the stuff that readers actually either need or care about, right? You know, the the the, the, the and so there was you know there were some hype stories, and and there was a, a guy making stuff up, the usual shit. Yeah, um, who and, you used as a basis for a character? Yeah, I, maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, um, but. The other thing was uh, the stuff that I really valued, which was starting to become sort of very delicate narrative and the idea of trying to pull actual human-sized people through the keyhole of journalism and, and do these narratives where and I wanted to make you care about a guy like Bubbles, mm-hmm. um, who was you know, based on a guy that, you know... Um, the fake guy lives down the street here. The fake Andre. guy? Andre. Andre Royal? Yeah. He's been in here. He lives right... He lives a couple miles away. Does he really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a hard time picturing him in L.A. I really do. It, it, is, it, is, it is difficult. And, you yeah. know, when he came in here, it was just this ball of New York energy. It was yeah, great. I know. Yeah, his, his wife owns a restaurant in Atwater. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's doing good. That's great. Yeah. Say hi for me. I will. Say hi for me. I will. Um, well, so, the, the real bubbles. Yeah, I mean, it's like at a certain point, what I valued in journalism had no, you know, what they valued was the Baltimore Sun has learned and is a result of an investigation they're going to hold committee meetings and can you hand us our prize now. Yeah. There was almost a formula to it. It came out of Philly. It came out of the Gene Roberts School of Journalism of, of this is how you win a prize. You break it and then let it... Re- and, then let and, it- and then for a year, you report about how important your reporting is. You know, <laughs> They were masters of that. If you didn't do the follow-up reporting to say how great your reporting was and how important, how relevant the Baltimore Sun was, right? they got mad. They got mad. And, 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 and so like I, I started looking at this. I started feeling, you know, this is not... Okay, we were not... We were a stodgy paper. We were a little bit greater than the sum of our, or smaller than the sum of our parts, I yeah. should say. Um, the Baltimore Sun was, was a gray thing. Yeah. They, uh, Mencken used to say the, the morning paper, he was on the evening paper, he used to say we wrote like accountants. Yeah. There's a little bit of truth to that. But it was a very honest paper. Yeah. Uh, and, and we used to sit around and argue about what was fair and what was right. And sometimes when the, we didn't have the story, we spiked it. And we didn't- we What does didn't, that mean, spike it? Uh, you, you know, you, don't, you hold the story right. because you don't have it yet. Right. You know, you need- you know. And you'd have those debates. Yeah. I mean, like, by the way, that's an unheard of dynamic with the internet now. I mean, sure. You know, there's nobody saying, you know what? I, I only heard this from one person. Maybe I should actually check it out. Yeah. No, no, yeah, no. It's going right up on Vulture. It's going right up on-, on well, the, And the weird thing is, is I don't think people, consumers or people can really tell the difference between anything that, you know, like no, where no, a story comes from or there's, there's no gauge and there's no rule to it. No, I mean, uh, you know- 
uh, I knew we were in a brave new world when I was, I, at one point I looked at my Wikipedia yeah. entry and I was married to Howard Stern's ex. <laughs> Me. And I was, I was. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's another sure. guy named David Simon. Right. Who, you know. <laughs> you know, How was that for you for that the weeks that that was up? Um, I, listen, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't much care. I was amused by it. You yeah. know, my wife less so. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but on you know on a really basic level, you know, okay, this can happen now because mm-hmm. again, it's the wild west, and people can cherry pick the information that fits their ideology and run with it like it's the truth, and that's how you get like these camps of thought that are you know based right. on garbage. Yeah, and now listen, journalists could do that, but but usually there was a consensus within the newsroom when a guy was doing it too often and, and you know, to, yeah. to, to a greater degree. Um, eventually, somebody challenged him or eventually some, somebody spiked a story. Right. And I mean, I saw it happen. Some of the moments I've been most proud of in journalism were stories that didn't run yeah. and that shouldn't have run. Right. Um, so, you know, there is there, there came a point at which I was, the newspaper that I had grown up at and that I loved had sort of ceased to, to be and what, uh-huh. what was replacing it, you know, what they regarded as valuable journalism, I, I had no regard for, and what I regarded as valuable. It was time to go. At about the same time, my first book had sold to NBC, and Barry Levinson and Tom. That Fettina. was the homicide book. Yeah, and they had come into town to film that show. And, and did you reach out to Barry Levinson because he was a Baltimore guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the book we, book came out here, and, and uh, when did you have time to write the book? Would you take a break? I took, or? I took a year's leave to go to the homicide unit. Was that be, was that because uh, was that for the paper, or or just because you were like, I, you know, I got to do something else? It was both. I yeah. mean, in the sense of uh, we had just gone through a, a strike, and I was sort of mad at management, and I thought, you know, this would be good to t- sort of walk. And you were a, you a big union guy. Yeah, I'm a big union guy. So we had just, you know, we were the most profitable we'd ever been yeah. at that point in time. And they were cutting our medical because that's how that's how they do. Yeah. And I was a little bit mad, and and at the same time, don't want to give up a daily newspaper job at a major paper. You know, for cause. You know, you get a book contract, you can take a year's leave of absence. Right. So I went into the homicide unit in '88 uh, to to write the book um, and write my first book. Uh, but it was also, you know, it made me. It obviously gave me a ton of sources in the police department. Yeah. You know, hang out in the hang out in the in the in the. And they let you. How long did it take to uh, to sort of develop a trust? Amongst them, ten days. Oh yeah, you know they're so busy up there. They're working two hundred at that time, two hundred forty murders a year. They're Unbelievable. So, they're so busy. Yeah, the thirty six guys up yeah. there that it was like they had five days of wariness, five days of like teasing me and torturing me. Yeah, yeah. And, like you know, and then after that, it was like sort of like the test. Yeah, and yeah. Right, after after they got through with the five days of like batting me around like a mouse. You yeah, know, yeah. The cats all had to go back to work. <laughs> right. And it was like you know, then your furniture. So yeah. th- that was actually you know the second book was a little longer mm-hmm. for obvious reasons because we went to a drug corner to do the drug war. Now, the first book, so it gets bought by um, NBC, was it? Yeah, and I didn't take it seriously. I mean, I, I was like, well, that's great. Maybe. How did it happen? Who who brokered it? Your agent? How does that Yeah, yeah. it went to CAA, and, right. and they tried to sell it for a feature, and nobody was buying. For a, for a film? Yeah, no, yeah, nobody was buying. And, and it was I, too big, probably. How are you going to yeah, render pages. that? pages. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, like, I'm I'm on the rewrite desk at the right. Sun. I'm like, I'm working night shifts that, right. that week. And right, I, like, right. What do I know? And even when NBC buys it, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, well, yeah, and it wasn't NBC. It was actually Levinson's company bought oh. it and took it. He had a deal to make something for NBC. I think right. he was going to make Diner into yeah. a, a one-hour drama. That, those were the choices? Homicide or Diner? Well, they didn't want Diner. <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they didn't see the drama in that. By the way, it might have been a great show. Sure, it was a great but, movie. But, uh, but, but then he came back to the... Uh, it was Gail Mutrix in his office, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, one of his associate producers, who read the book, handed it to him. But 
I, I did have the one moment of saying, why don't you send it to Barry Levinson? He's from Baltimore. Right. Like, right. that was my big moment of, right. you know. I could have just I said, idea. why don't you send it to John Waters, you know? He's from Baltimore. <laughs> that would have been a very different show. Very different show. <laughs> yeah. And John's a friend. John's a friend, but no. It, yeah, yeah. We sent it to the right guy. Yeah. And then it goes in, and then they, they decide to make it. And how and, and what how do they bring you in initially? What is the offer? What is at first? Gail actually said, "Do you want to try to write the pilot?" And right. I said, "You know, do you take me for a fool? I, I've never written anything. I've never even written a a, 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 a script, a, a one act play yeah. for like you know. For, yeah, you're a reporter for for, for, for the um for a retirement party, right. the Sun. <laughs> yeah, I, I have you know I have yeah. nothing. Yeah. And uh, I said, but you know what? Um, I do know the world. Once you get a bunch of templates mm -hmm. of several scripts by somebody who knows what they're doing, show them to me and I'll take a shot at one. Yeah. Um, but even then I thought of it as a lark. And, and, and when they offered me a script assignment that first year, um, I, I called up my friend Dave Mills, um, who I worked on the college paper with. Yeah. He was a reporter at the Washington Post. And uh, he was always the guy who, when we were putting out the college paper, he would like have to stop for an hour yeah. and stop writing headlines on his pages to go watch Hill Street Blues. Right. You know, he was that guy. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, you follow this better than I do. You want to take a shot at this? And so we wrote a script in about two weeks. And, and uh, it was so depressing and so dark, <laughs> a script, that NBC wouldn't make it. And they held it for, they, were, they spiked it, basically. Yeah. And uh, second season, um, I think it was Mark Johnson, Barry's producing partner at the time, went and talked to Robin Williams, who had done Good, Good Morning Vietnam, for, yeah. and uh, and showed him the script. And Robin Williams wanted to do the, the guest spot of, yeah. the, of the husband whose uh, wife is killed in front of him. Yeah. And uh, at that point, it, NBC said, oh, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. So, um, so that was your script. Yeah, and it won the WGA Award. And right. like David Mills immediately like quit the post and went to Hollywood. Yeah. Came out here and, and, and just kept sending me notes that said, you know, you're an idiot. Yeah. But I didn't take it seriously. And, and and I went back and I reported the second book and I went back to the paper and The Corner. Yeah. And yeah. and then uh Well it wasn't to you you didn't take it seriously primarily because it was entertainment, right? Yes, it was apostasy. Yeah. I, I, you know, I <laughs> Bernie Simon did not raise me to be a TV writer. You know, he raised me to like, you know. Make a difference. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know. Or be a pursuer of truth. Something. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or write prose, you know. Or, yeah. no, you know, basically. I mean, I used to go back. I used to, When I was at The Sun those early years, I used to go back for, you know, Friday night dinner at my yeah. parents' house. And, and we'd sit around. And, you know, I, my brother is um, uh, a significant significantly smarter than I am. He's a, he's a he's a physician, he's a medical researcher, he's uh -huh. the head of the infectious disease department at, at Johns Hopkins University. Oh wow. My sister was a, a a fine artist, a painter who was exhibited, you know, um you know, yeah. uh, had a masters in fine art taught, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, legitimately, you know, meaningful artist. Yeah. I'm the newspaper hack. Yeah. And we'd sit around the table and my dad would look, you know, my dad had nothing you know, nothing to say about the cooning to my sister and yeah. nothing to say about medical research to my brother. And he would look at me and go, so you used a Jaren lead, you know? What, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah, seem yeah. to be leaning hard on the Jaren leads. What Why, is that? You know, what is that? Yeah. What is a Jaren lead? It's like beginning with like, you know, an ING word. Oh, yeah, you know? okay. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, you, you know, the last three leads have been Jaren leads. You, you're leaning a little hard on that, Dave. Dave. Like this is this he knew. This right, is right, like he could right. engage with. So, right. you know, it was... Uh, it, like, Dad, I'm going to become a TV writer. Yeah. That's my move. Did he, is he around? Did he? Uh... Yeah, he saw it all happen. He um, did. <laughs> he, he died about five years ago. I, uh -huh. I had, uh, the Wire had started, the, he was, the Wire had started, 
at that point, he was a little astonished uh-huh. uh, about what I was doing. He never got over the profanity. Oh, he was a very gracious it? man, and um, it's hard for them to see through that. When when the book Homicide, yeah. when I showed him the galleys, yeah. and he went through the pages, he carefully edited out every, even the ones in quotes. He edited out all the profanity. And the one that I'll never forget, which made me, I loved him so hard when I read this page. Yeah. Uh, a detective, or, or it was actually my pro. Somebody was referred to as being pissed drunk. Yeah, and and he literally put in drunk to the point of urination. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't understand the, the phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even if he did, it yeah. was like, we can get there another way and we can do it with dignity. You know, you know you're just, don't be a potty mouth. Yeah. And I'm like, dad, I, I'm sorry. I've been in Baltimore too long. And, you know, I, the, the homicide unit has to sound like the homicide yeah. unit. Did he let you off the hook? I don't think he ever reconciled to. And the other thing is my dad was from that era of, you know, I grew up, with Vietnam, with Watergate, mm-hmm. with 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 I.F. Stone being a hero, you know, yeah. see Stone, like, like, you know, you expect a certain amount of lying from your government, mm-hmm. and and you, the trick is, you know, all governments lie, as mm-hmm. Stone says. The the trick is is to parse the ones out that are the most egregious, and to and to correct the ones that are uh, merely mistakes, and to and to credit them when they actually tell the truth, and and to and to be able to tell the difference, and that's the, that's the job. Yeah. But my dad was from an era where, like, he used to love it when I wrote feature stories that were like happy stories yeah i mean i remember my dad was doing freelance work into the 50s and 60s and you know one of his stories was like his stories would be like there was a lot of the bridge they said couldn't be built you know about the verrazano narrows in new york it was like you know affirming he you know he would have loved stephen ambrose yeah yeah in fact you know i i don't know if stephen ambrose but like can do right america can you well, know and, and, and human you know, and yeah. he loved he loved the politician like you know he, he uh, the stories he would tell were about like affirming stories about authority mm-hmm. he wasn't authoritarian but he but he wasn't ignorant he, no not at all but he, he wanted to trust and he wanted to believe in the good of people and you have that uh, some some I, I i certainly feel like most people are good and i feel like even a lot of like i even have affection for like thing, pe- people who are in classes that everybody sneers at. Like I, like the the heroes of Show Me a Hero for mm-hmm. me are the bureaucrats. Yeah, they're bureaucrats. Um, so I have some of that. But but it, it, my my dad really like was worried. Even in the last years of his life, at one point I was I was arguing, I was writing some stuff that was very critical of police policy in uh-huh. in, in Baltimore. And, yeah, and um, he, I remember him saying to me, he "Goes the police are going to get mad at you," and uh, I was like. You know, yeah, <laughs> they'd be fools not to. Yeah. He goes, well, are you going to be okay? I'm going to be like, yeah, you know. But uh, was he worried about your personal, physical safety on some level, or, or? That, or that there would be a comeback? Or, right, yeah, right. He was worried. He yeah. was worried for me. Well, yeah. that's usually what parents do. Right, yeah. right. But I mean, you know, I guess journalism had changed. Journalism had become much more adversarial as a result of Vietnam, as right. the Pentagon Papers, you know, I mean, um, Watergate. Um, and rightly so, you know, by necessity, it needs to be adversarial. And but my dad was, for somebody who wanted to be a newspaper reporter and who could write, you know, he he taught me a lot about writing. He was a very good writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he nonetheless, the temperament of modern journalism, um, mm-hmm. foam from the lip of a mad dog, as as uh, as Mencken once yeah. referred to it. Well, um, he was like a New Deal guy, right? Your dad, yeah, we, yeah. you know, like we look what we did, right? You know, we, we 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 rebuilt it. We got people working, and you know, it's okay, right? Well, you know, uh, the the people that he loved 
were like he used to say to me t- at times, "Can't you write more of the features? You have such a nice light touch with features, you know." <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, I can, and sometimes I do." But you know, Dad, look, I just pulled you know the grand jury information on Clarence Mitchell. I know what they're investigating for, and he'd be like, "You're not supposed to have clar- uh, grand jury information. That's illegal." I'm like, "Yeah, isn't it great?" <laughs> he'd be like, "No, no, give it back." I'm like, "No, I'm not giving it back." Yeah. He didn't want you to get hurt. He didn't want me to get hurt. Yeah, it's a very Jewish parenting. So. From the beginning, were you um, creator of Homicide? No, no, no. Um, they just bought the- They, they bought the book. Yeah. Uh, Paul Antonazio wrote the uh, pilot script and, and the show. It was show run by, uh, by Tom Fontana uh, with an assist from Barry. Now, I, just for the, for the sake of, of you know, writers and, and people who, who are you know, trying to do something relevant in television, I mean, what was the process of your education? I mean, you know, outside of being sent some spec scripts or some functioning scripts and well, writing I, with uh, your partner. I, you know, I, I sent the scripts into Tom and it came back with red ink and this works, this doesn't. Oh, my God, what are you trying to do here? You know, this And is, you like Tom. Uh, I, I, Tom's my mentor as yeah. far as a TV writer. I, I, I like him. He kept every promise to me. He was committed to um, growing us yeah. as, as as writers and producers, he 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 was. Uh, thank God I went to work for him. He was. Yeah. He, so he taught you how to 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 yeah. write an effective script and to be a showrunner. Yeah, and 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 you know Jimmy Finnerty, his his producing partner, taught us how to the practicals of production. And uh, I worked under some very smart playwrights, you know Jimmy Ashimura and Eric Overmeyer and and Julie Martin. Um, so the, you know. Everybody I was working under was teaching me stuff. One of the things they did was, uh, I remember Jimmy Ashimura said, "You got to read plays." You know, that's yeah. how. You, and and you know, I'd read some when I was in college. You know, I'd read sort of the obvious ones. I took a Shakespeare course. You know, I'd read mm-hmm. some Chekhov, but not enough. Yeah. And and that was really good grooming because in start, what sense? What did you take from it? Uh, you understand pacing, yeah. and you understand how to bring people on and take people off uh, uh, of stage. And um, it's not the same as TV. I mean, the little words cut to yeah. make television and film a little bit uh, different dynamic. Uh, the, the, the blocking is obviously yeah. very different. But, you know, in drama, every line, every word has to justify itself. You can have an aside in a yeah. prose article right, um, and not completely die as long as you do it elegantly. Right. There's no asides in, in drama. It's all got to serve the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, uh, if, you go, if you go aside from the story you have to know that you're doing it. it has to be incredibly measured and you have to get in and get out very fast and when you but you know when you had the time and the expanse of the wire you know at, you know you know being lean is one thing but you also knew you had the you know this amazing arc of right, the narrative right well that's what it gives you is is you know like uh homicide was a very well written show yeah um but it was 22 yeah, minutes, right? It, it, no, I was going to say 20. Oh. It was 45 minutes. Twenty. It was 22 episodes. Right. So it was like basically a series of linked short stories. Right. Uh, if you treat uh, a season of television, even a, a shortened season like a, the 10 or 12 or 13 episodes of, yeah. of HBO, um, as one story, that's, you know, like the whole, all, all three Godfather movies, including the... Um, Including the bad one, yeah. are, are at nine hours. Right. You know? So now you now you can create a universe. Right. And now you have, you can take a little bit of more of a breath than you otherwise would. Yeah. And you knew that from going in. Yeah. You're like, great. Yeah. Now we can sort of spread it. You know, open right. it up. Right. I mean, I, I, it's the one thing when I was working on Homicide, I feel like I used to feel like oh, this episode was great. I wish we could stay here instead of go do something. Else. Like I, I, you know. Yeah. So there was, the wire was an opportunity to do that. Well, actually, the, the miniseries, the, and, the corner and was. Ed Burns is somebody you knew from before. 
Ed was a cop. He yeah. was a homicide detective, and he became, over time, uh, a source of information for me. Uh, I, I met him. He had done a wiretap case on a, on a guy named Little Melvin, Melvin Williams, yeah. a huge drug dealer in Baltimore. He just passed away in December. Melvin did. Yeah. And uh, Ed was one of the lead investigators in the case, and, and I was assigned to do a, a, a series of articles on Melvin because his career had spanned decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I met Ed. And um, just straight on, this is a source of information. And over time, I came to really enjoy him. He thought differently from mm-hmm. a lot of the institutionalized police. Um, uh, the, by the way, the m- a lot of other police would have said, "Yeah, he's a fucking asshole." But right. but I loved him. I, mean, yeah. I thought he was you know he was a guy who was thinking in big circle, yeah. circles yeah, yeah, about yeah. what they were doing. He had he had been he was a Vietnam vet. He'd lost. He'd been on that losing fight. He was in the drug war. He saw that as a losing fight. He then went to be a school teacher after 20 years in the department, and he, he saw that mm-hmm. that battle uh, yeah. in, a, in a middle school in Baltimore, sort of close up. Um, he's an interesting cat, and uh, and that's how. I, and, and at a certain point, when um when I was ready to do the corner, I thought yeah. this is the guy to do it with because he already had the same doubts about the drug war. Right. And the corner was how many episodes? Oh well, I mean, he, we did the book together. We went to the we went to uh, Monroe and Fayette for a year in yeah. 1993. Yeah, and then it was six. Uh, sold it to HBO, and it was six episodes. And he's he was your production partner in that as well. No, actually, at that point, uh, he um, he had gone to teaching. Yeah, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, that was when he he was working on in at, at the because uh, we had done the reporting before. Well, after he got his teaching certificate, and before he had gone. to and to be blunt, uh, HBO was really scared of doing that project uh, with a white guy, two white guys who had written the book. The Corner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it was a book about, you know, a predominantly African-American community deluged by drugs. It was a very, you know, it has its it has its delicacies when it comes to political correctness and mm-hmm. sensibility that, that they felt. I didn't feel that really. I mean, I felt the book was very humanistic and I, I didn't have a problem. Well, they're going to be reactive no matter what. Right. So, Sensitive. So I got in the room with them, and, and they and the, the the room, it was clear they were asking me if I would be willing to have another writing partner, and I sort of saw where it was going. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I certainly would work on the scripts with Jimmy Ashimura, and I got a blank, you know, that yeah. doesn't help us. Yeah, and, right. And I said, oh, or David Mills, who was my friend from college, who was who had written my first script with. He yeah. was, at the time, he'd done a couple of years on NYPD Blue, and he was working on L.A. Law, and- and uh, they said, you know David Mills? I said, yeah, we went to college together. He's one of my best friends. Yeah. Can you get David Mills? To, you know, yeah. And, uh, needless to say, David Mills is an African-American writer. Uh, right. So that was like- That's oh, the way that works. Yeah. That, that's why I did that without Ed Burns. I did it with David Mills because uh-huh. because that's the only way to get it done. Uh-huh. They, need, they needed the racial cover of knowing. It wasn't a quota hire because you're buddies with him. I was happy to work with David right, Mills. Of course. I, I told the whole story to David Mills, and yeah. he was cracking up. Right. He goes, that's how I got the job. I go, no, 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 David. They also know, you know, <laughs> they, they, knew, you, yeah, they, yeah, knew, yeah. they yeah. knew you by rep and by name. As soon as I mentioned the name, he goes, I know, I'm just, I'm busting balls. Uh, yeah, yeah. Know? But, but, I mean, we, my friendship with David by then had gone well beyond sort of the racial dynamic. Of, sure, of course. But, but there was this moment of, oh, I get it. You guys really need a black writer on this. Okay. Yeah. I found that in The Wire, what was you know interesting and amazing to me was really the, the, the one character at the end of it all that has actually transformed is Bubbles. Yeah. And, and that, you know, at the end of it all, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the almost, the real victim of, 
of drugs on a human level outside of you know the 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 politics or the sales or anything else is is the hopeless addict yeah. and you know and at the end of that whole thing you know bubbles is is kind of okay for and, them and, and not through any not through any act of the war on drugs no right you know yeah no it was just that like the human story like to me like at the end of that like because it's a devastating period of time you spend in that world right all of them right and bubbles represent in Man, we needed to throw some some honest hope, and, and the right. truth is, you get to be about the age that Bubbles was. Yeah, and that's when guys start coming out of it. Yeah, when they hit bottom and they're in their thirty, you know, these the guys who are in their twenties who get, you know, there's a reason that it's like the tenth or the eleventh time you go to treatment. Right, that it finally sticks. Yeah, and it's good if as, you live. Yeah, if you live. Yeah, and if if you don't go to jail and if, right, you know. But I mean, if the guys who truly make it stick in the end. Uh, their bodies are a little tired. Their minds are a little tired. They've they've been on the spin cycle for a long while. Mm-hmm. When you're young and you're strong, you know you do your 28 days, and around day 21, you start asking the guys coming in yeah. what the hot corners are and what the good product is. Yeah, and you know those are the guys who. I mean, I know guys like Bubbles who sure. who are clean now for 20. You know, I mean George Epps, the guy who was blue in, in the corner, he passed away regrettably, um, but uh, he was he was clean for 20 years. After really? Walk, after he walked away from the shooting gallery that his house had become, and he stayed clean, and I was proud to know that man. I mean, it was it was yeah. a hero's journey. Yeah, no, I you know I, I I see a lot of it. You know, being you know I was, I'm clean myself. You know, I'm sober, and you know, just that you know, I always get moved by those stories that you, you know that because understanding that struggle on a personal level and seeing what yeah. people go through with that without trivializing it, uh, you know, because a lot of times people who do not have the compulsion or a family member. Or a friend yeah. who, who has gone through the hopelessness of that thing, right? They don't get it. It's like, well, just stop. Exactly. You know, and, yeah. and the, the, you know, listen, stopping, stopping is almost the least of the problems. Like, okay, now I'm, I I popped out at 28 days. I feel clean. I feel yeah, strong. Yeah. But I'm walking back to the same people, places, and things, as they say in in, in the rooms. You know, and, and and my life is still got yeah. the holes in it it had when I when I went down this path. And yeah. So, I mean, the, the, like the work just begins once you get sober. Yeah, yeah, because, sober. like, you know, somehow or another you have to get that to that point, however you're going to do it, to where the obsession, you re, you're relieved of the obsession. Right. Where it doesn't become the thing, you know, the first thing you go to, and then you can't stop the hunger for it. Right. That's right. a tricky bit of business. Right. It, it really is. And, 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 I mean, I came to admire a lot of those guys, and, you know, people like... The younger guys, I mean, of the of the of the kids that we followed in that rec center for the corner, yeah. Um, one of them is out of jail now, and he's working a job. He's got a forklift operator, and he's doing okay, and he's got a girlfriend, and and he's you know he's coming up on forty, and I have hopes, Dante. Um, last I heard from him when we talked, he was doing good, and and another kid who went never went to the corner. He was like a stoop kid, you yeah. Know, never left the stoop. He he did great. I mean, yeah. he moved out to the camp. I mean, he had you know. But everybody else, uh, they're gone. They're gone, man. Um, and you, know, you keep in touch with these guys. Yeah, I mean the ones who are alive. Most of them are, are not alive. Right. Um, what? What can? What? How do? You, how do you check in with them? And what compels you to, to sort of stay on top of their lives? Um, well, I mean, I, Fran became a friend. Yeah. De- DeAndre's mother became a friend, and and uh, and she's clean, and she yeah. mo- she moved her family o- over the city line up in northeast, and and. Uh, you know, my kid grew up with DeAndre's kid. Um, they were born about the same year, uh-huh. and um, they know each other. And um, I mean, I've just—it's uh, been an honor to know her. You sure. know, it's like yeah. it's—it's it's broadened me. It's, yeah. it's, it's not a 
it's not like oh now right it, right it's right. not that it's I mean she's I know her whole family and she's been doing good for so long that it's you know her her nieces and nephews never are, saw are her going, right. going through college yeah you know? I mean right. she, she she survived all of her uh, she has an older brother who's clean and everybody else is gone yeah um, in the family and she fucking she, brutal man yeah she's ended up being the um, the rock yeah and so you know not only do, would I want to support that just to support it but, but yeah uh, i've come to really enjoy her yeah um so there's that yeah uh and you know some of it it's been hard to keep up with people you know sure they, once they're in the wind i mean i heard about rc passing away which um, one is rc rc was one of the one of the andre's friends yeah from, from the rec center and from yeah. the drug corner and he died maybe uh three or four years ago and and um maybe three years ago and and uh, i heard about it two weeks late I mean, I, you know, somebody came up to me in the market and said, did you hear about R.C.? I was like, oh, no. You know, last I'd heard, he'd gone to stay with uh, his mother's people in New Jersey. Sure. And, and I guess these are people you spend a year with on some level. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, listen, I stayed in touch with some of the detectives. You yeah. Know? I mean, they're, they're, uh, to this day, I, I, I regard Terry McClarney yeah. as, as a philosopher. He's still in the force. I regard him as a philosopher king. You uh-huh. Know? Uh-huh. Um, every time he opens his mouth, I feel like writing it on a cocktail napkin because he's so funny. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's amazing, those kind of guys, right? Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know. So, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, uh, the trick is not detaching. To write that stuff, you got to love your characters. you got to love the people you're writing about. Genuinely love them. The trick is not going native. You don't have to worry. I mean, the trick is putting in the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. It's being honest about, you know. And forms. being respectful. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you're being granted access, you know, write the whole human being. Yeah, if you can do that, you know, not everybody. The detectives didn't like everything in the book, but they got it. They got it. Right, and and the same thing happened on the corner. Yeah, to, to a degree. And with Treme, was that sort of a departure? Was that a different world for you? You know, what what kind of um, pulled I, you into that? I wanted to write something that that affirmed for the city. Yeah, uh, for the idea of the 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 American city being this pluralistic, multicultural phenomenon that, uh-huh. that not only do we have to master it it's our it's our, it's our future yeah. is, is urbanity um it's the world's future we we either gotta master it and love it uh and and triumph with uh-huh. it or or we're shit out of luck we're, right you know the society is is and so i was a little bit taken aback that people watched the wire which was specifically about the parts of my city that got left behind it was not about it, was, it wasn't about roland park mm-hmm. or mount washington or, mm-hmm. or federal hill uh, or you know the the neighborhoods that are the, okay of the, the viable America, mm-hmm. you know the, the schizophrenia right now uh, between the haves and the have-nots in this country has only been accelerated, and so I was astonished to see people watch the show and go, "Man, Baltimore's a mess," and and why don't they just move? Mm-hmm. Why don't they just leave? Like, and go where? Right, Camden, New Jersey. Well, go you know yeah. go where? Yeah, D.C. Yeah, you you think this is unique to Baltimore? But there was that kind of callow response on the part of some people, as, right. if, as if they were looking at something that was an aberration rather than than the actual uh, stratification of our culture. Right. So I thought, you know what, the contempt that I'm hearing, the, the implied contempt from people who are living out in some gated community somewhere for, for the lives that other Americans are living, made me mad. And where can you go to... To be honest about an American city that has the same problems as Baltimore, which right. New Orleans clearly does, right? But nonetheless, has its culture out in the street, right? The culture is demonstrable. It's out, you know. They literally parade with it every Sunday, yeah. And 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 not only that has given these great cultural gifts oh, to yeah. America. I mean, your know, jazz comes from about eight square blocks, yeah. of of uh, back of town, yeah. New Orleans. 
and um, I, I, I found I found that an argument for the city was actually necessary after the war, mm-hmm. and that that was Treme was an opportunity. And you that. saw, and you you moved through the music too. Yeah, the music that was the, the music uh, becomes portal the, in. Yeah, it becomes you know certainly we did we try to do stuff with comparable you know visual arts and, and culinary sure. and stuff, but the music was a means of metaphorical means of saying. This doesn't happen mm-hmm. without, you know, people of color, without white people, without, mm-hmm. you know, jazz is, jazz only happens in this country. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen in West Africa. It doesn't happen in Europe. It happens, you know, from the, you know, you're a musician, you'll know this, you know, uh, the, from the pentatonic scale with a flatted third and a flatted seventh, which is a, a West African dynamic. Yeah. And from instrumentation and, uh, um, and uh, musical logic that is distinctly European. Yeah, you know the re- the reason that jazz bands probably got their kick at the time they did was all the bands coming back from the Spanish American War, right. dumping their instruments. All the military bands dumping their instruments when the boats hit the docks. You know, you could pick up a, everything from a sousaphone to a trombone for yeah. nothing. Yeah, and and so all of a sudden, you know, literally within it's five, yeah, Buddy Bolden within three four years. Yeah. Using, you know, uh, was he a cornet? Was he? A he Trump? was a cornet. Yeah. yeah, he was a cornet player. Never recorded. Yeah, everyone just says, "Oh, mythological man, being." You should, you should have heard Buddy Bolden yeah, yeah, play, yeah. but you can't. You know? And then you get to uh, to Louis and uh, from him, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, it, it, it only can happen because we're the wonderful mutts we are, right? Culturally, and um, and it's a triumph of our of our of our pluralism, and so it was a great metaphor, for, right. for arguing for the city. And with with Generation Kill, because uh, you know, it seems that you know you you, you cover very intensely and, and and very you know powerfully these struggles. And what brought you to initially to to deal with the military? That, that one came from uh, uh, HBO. HBO had optioned the the first the Rolling Stone articles, yeah. and then the book yeah. by by Evan Wright uh, and Carrie Antholis, who had uh, been the exec on on the corner on the miniseries side, sent it to me and said, "What do you think?" You know anybody for this? And he was, you know, he's trolling, and and he, he, I put the hook right in my mouth. And yeah, and I, I, that book I thought was the some of the most honest journalism to come out of of the war. Um, and it was a, to me, it was a great critique of of sort of of young men at war and sort of what we ask of our uh, sort of the modern military culture uh, and, and the warrior culture that 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 sustains it because. Um, it's no longer the volunteer army. It's not the army of Vietnam. The, the, those young men wanted to be there. That they had trained for it. It was, it was, it was what they do. The new army. Yeah, it was what yeah. they do. It is and a volunteer army. It's, a, it's yeah. an absolute volunteer, army. and it's not like they're getting just people who can't. I can't find a job, so I got to go in the army. That's right. that's the myth. No, right. they were getting all kinds of people who wanted to be, um, basically, you know, a warrior class. Yeah. Who who, who seek this. Uh, life and, and and this this structure and this commitment and 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 this journey yeah. and like you know our notion that like this is the fallout from a bad economy is is a little indulgent on our part when you actually like look who those guys were now of course that was a recon unit a marine recon unit yeah but then the other thing that you could play against that um, and fairly so because it was the truth which was um, they went with a very two dimensional idea of what the war was and wasn't. And then once you get on the ground and you started, they started going towards Baghdad, 
Um, yeah. The, the, you know, Maybe it was a little more complicated. There was an incredibly good tactical plan mm-hmm. to capture Baghdad, mm-hmm. and, and they did magnificently. Mm-hmm. The strategic plan beyond that of what to do with it once you had it. Yeah. Um, still unclear. Still unclear. <laughs> right. Still unclear. And, and other people got to that in different ways. I mean, yeah. if, if you re- read uh, Rick Atkinson's book, I mean, he- you know, he he quotes famously quotes Petraeus as saying, "You know, explain to me how this ends." Yeah, because um, a lot of people, a lot of people couldn't see it, but to see it dawn on a lot of these, you know, very competent twenty one, twenty two, twenty three year old, you know, I mean, th- those guys, you know, uh, the squad leaders, some of them twenty three years old, calling in airstrikes on their own because they were that capable of right. uh, small unit tactics. Um, it, it, these were not stupid. Guys, right. and and they were absorbing what what was happening before their eyes as they as they moved into Baghdad and as they acquired this society with without without sufficient numbers or credibility or authority to to do anything, Ugh. but see yeah. it go bad. Well, what what happens now? What are you working on? Uh, I'm working on a piece that should be commercially viable for the first time in my life. Uh, it's about porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and you say that like I, I mean what do you mean commercially you're doing fine what do you what, now you want to see no I mean I mean I could actually have a hit oh okay the truth is I'll I'll fuck it up it's yeah, a, yeah I'm making a show about uh, the rise of the of the sex industry uh, after uh, from seventy two to eighty six when when uh, in that window between of community standards only applying mm-hmm. um, and until the Miller decision in seventy three. There was this window that basically they drove a truck through, which was uh, hardcore pornography became uh, a legitimate industry. Right. And the sex industry exploded out of the shadows and, 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 and sort of ground zero for that was Times Square. So it's set, it's about Times Square and about when Times Square went to hell from 72 to about 86. Did you read the Friedman book, The Tales of Times Square? Yeah, I did. I, I've, read a, I've read everything. Well, um, that, that, that one essay, which they cover a little in Boogie Nights, you know, the transition from the, the quarter machines to video was with from the booths to the home marty hodis yeah marty hodis yeah pretty amazing yeah and, and, and you know uh that moment of um of oh my god i i just pulled you know ten thousand dollars in in four days i got to carry it all to the bank in, in in bags yeah um but yeah i mean what happened it to me it's a story about capitalism mm-hmm. um and and again what we were talking about earlier which is you know uh you think that capitalism is going to point the way to a better society, that, that the markets will show us the way untethered mm-hmm. to any sort of moral imperative of, of what's right and what's wrong and, and who gets used and what happens to labor. And, yeah. Because the people who are the labor for this stuff, the, the, you know, particularly the women, of course, um, you know, the pioneers of this brave new industry uh, were fairly well brutalized, if not, you know, on camera, uh, if not the on-camera people. Um, there was a whole sort of subculture that they were coming out of, which was, you know, the pimps and the hookers and, mm-hmm. and the massage parlors up and down 42nd Street. And it's interesting when there's no there's no overt industry and then suddenly there it is. It's, you know, here it is. It's the Wild West. Right. Write your own rules. And that's what we're trying to capture. So you hear me say that and you realize, my God, this guy's going to shoot a show about porn and, you know, 
It's going to be the most unsexy thing in the right. world. He's going to. It would take David Simon to ruin a show about porn and make it unfun. And you know. well, I mean, but no, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the right way to do it because I don't think we look at it like that, and I think it gets um, you know. And obviously, I've watched porn. I understand porn, and I, I'm sort of constantly amazed at the complete pornification of our culture right. to the point where, like, you, 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 I remember vaguely in the '80s that there was a commission put in place, uh, some sort of moral Mies commission to. to sort of limit this stuff and at some point it was just like nope it's going to be everywhere and right. it's going and it's going to be accepted and it's going to completely change it's changed the demeanor of how of, we, we of sex of sex of how we talk but right i mean it really did and, and of course the, the the people who were first in the door which yeah. would have been like the mob in new york which right. bankrolled a lot of the shit uh the, the, the mafia and uh and a lot of the people in the in the sort of new york culture there, there are not that many survivors. There are some survivors, but, but man, the attrition rate was pretty heavy. Yeah, uh, because you know it was. It wasn't like anyone was looking out for anybody. And, um, and well, the guys who were at the top making the money didn't. You know, they they looked at the the people who were in the movies and the right. women primarily as disposable. And there was plenty right. of them. Well, actually, and 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 they 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 did that so badly that you know it all moved to the San Fernando. It came out here because. Um, you know, in some ways, you needed even the the the, the backwash from the entertainment industry to handle to, ev- uh, to, to handle fuel even fuel it to yeah. handle even the, the the okay. It it might be degrading, but it doesn't have to be that degrading as what was happening in New York. Because, and we got camera guys out here, and we got guys who can right, make room. And we right, we have there's some plenty right. of willing people. Right, but I mean, like if you look at the sort of the mob's ability to actually run. A functional business yeah these are guys who like you know you hand them a casino and they bust it out yeah yeah, yeah. you know it's like right, they, right. they, they went here print money print your own money no i'd rather steal for myself you know right. they they've always been short term guys so and, where do you take it up to uh just 86 when um when the same cops that were being paid off for 14 years kicked in the doors uh-huh. Um, and that was, you know, Koch, and it was it was the HIV outbreak, and he needed to be egalitarian about what he was closing. He needed to close the bathhouses down yeah. in the village, genuinely for you know they had a health crisis, right? But he did not want to be, be perceived um, for various political reasons, you know, practically as being anti-gay, and so he needed to kick in the doors of a lot of massage parlors and stuff up on Forty Second Street, even though the, there wasn't uh, an outbreak right. associated with the heterosexual, uh, right? Uh, sex industry oh right it, it was you know it, sure there was some stuff on the so fringe. you do the classic david simon multi-tiered uh, levels of of the capitalist culture we and try. political culture we try. all the way down to the and two you, on the bed and you try not to and you try not to make like like critique porn by making porn you right know, if we make it if we if we film this thing and it's too prurient then we're assholes and if we if we're too puritan if we're like standing on high and judging people for the sake of judging them we're too puritan but you're land, pretty good at balancing. You got to land the yeah. This one you got to land on the fence. You know. It's, yeah. And who's involved, actor wise, producer wise? Uh, James Franco and yeah. uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Wow. Two, two of our leads. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very deep cast. Oh, great. So. And uh, when are you going to run for office? <laughs> <laughs> when does that happen? When do you? When do you realize? Then, when, then, when that the, that's the Faustian deal, David. Yeah. At that point, the, at that point, the ghost of my father really starts to to spin. I mean, that's that's too that's too much Faust. Yeah, <laughs> that's way too much Faust. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hold you to that to some degree. You have no desire. No, 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 no. Uh, you know what? Mencken said um, famously that, that reporters live the life of kings. Yeah. 
And I used to say that about myself when I was making union scale and working at the Baltimore Sun. I felt that way to me. Yeah. Like, like, why would I descend right. like running for city council? Are, right. are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, I have this, I have, I'm yeah. on, I'm on this, I'm on this exalted level. I'm a city reporter. I'm the truth. Yeah. I, I yeah, can, you know, I, 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 I know it's bullshit, but I, but it felt real to me. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't think it is bullshit. You know, it felt that way. And, um, Okay, the paycheck's bigger, and they're letting. And I, I, this weird sinecure at HBO lets me do TV, but but the truth is, I don't feel. I feel as if I've not taken so many steps away from my original intent in doing this kind of TV that right. that I have to make the compromise where you your soul would hurt, or where I woke up one day and said, "Oh my God, you know, yeah. I have to I have to go in the call room." Yeah, and I got to raise ten thousand yeah. dollars in in four thousand dollar increments. Yeah. Or, or, I'm sorry, a hundred thousand dollars in four thousand dollars. You know, like, yeah. Uh, the, I'm making the other thing I'm working on right now is a show about Capitol Hill with uh, Carl Bernstein and some other people. Oh, that's great! And uh, how's he doing? He's he's Carl. Yeah, he's Carl. Did you like Spotlight? I loved Spotlight. Yeah, that's I, good, I, right? I, yeah. I mean, I introduced the film in D.C. and and uh, on a panel in D.C. and and um. It's been a long time since someone captured the thrill of reporting. You know, any film that has a minute and a half, uh, maybe even two minutes, maybe even two and a half minutes, I, yeah. I really would love to time it one time, of just guys looking through the Catholic directory, finding names and putting them in an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. When that's your action sequence, yeah. you got me. <laughs> You're in my wheelhouse, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what else do you watch? Anything? Uh, sports. Yeah. Um, TV shows? Movies. Yeah, movies. mostly movies. Uh, Every when people, I don't watch TV shows in real time. When people say to me, "Oh, you should see this. This, this was great," you know, yeah. you, you know, then yeah. I'll go. I'll go get all of them and sure do it. It's hard it. to make the time until somebody tells you. Yeah, well, right. I mean, there's just so much out there now that I need. Right. I need somebody in the business to say, "No, they did something good here. That you should pay attention to this." Well, you keep doing good things, man. It was great talking to you. It's great. Thanks for having me out here. This yeah. is, uh, and, and you know, here I am in, in Obama's chair, and your wife's happy. That's right. Yeah, that's right. My wife was very impressed to know I was doing this gig. I she, can't believe that. She, no, yeah, she, like. <laughs> well, I hope uh, I hope we did good. Uh, you know, uh, we'll she'll, she'll let me know. <laughs> okay, and I'll let you know. All right. That's a fucking solid guy, that David Simon. Solid, smart, righteous in a good way. Creates great shows. It was uh, it was a privilege to talk to him. And again, go to the new WTFpod.com. Enjoy. I will be doing some uh, weekly shows at the Trippany House here in L.A. where they have a parking lot. And it'll probably be like a $5 ticket that benefits the theater. And you can watch me uh, ramble through material with uh, reasonable expectations and, and uh, in a nice, intimate space. So go check the calendar for that stuff. And what else? Enjoy. Enjoy. I get to play guitar. I'm hurting my ears, though. I'm hurting my ears with the guitars. I, I do not know how to mic properly.